There are over 1 million unfilled manufacturing jobs in the United States. As we try to bring back more manufacturing to the region and build new things like rockets, satellites, autonomous vehicles, that supply demand mismatch is only going to grow. And that's even if we attract more people to manufacturing. Today's guest has a solution, robots, and he's rolling out a new business model to accelerate robot adoption. Welcome to Manufacturing Excellence, a podcast by Serif Consulting, where we have conversations with leaders pushing industrial businesses forward. In this episode, I speak with Saman Farid, the founder of Formic, who is leading the charge in developing robots as a service solutions. Formic is focused on delivering outcomes, not just hardware. Customers only pay for robots by the hour, just like they would traditional employees. By transforming the traditional approach, Formic is creating the conditions to drive large-scale adoption of automation across manufacturing. Whether you're a large industrial company or a small batch manufacturer, I think you'll find Formic fascinating. Thanks for joining today. It'd be awesome if you could just explain why you created Formic and what types of customers it's helping right now. Yeah, it's a great question. I'll start a little bit with my background. I spent the last 10 years as a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, investing in new technology, investing in AI and machine learning, and a lot of robotics. I invested in more than 50 different robotics companies and sat on the board of many of them. In kind of traditional Silicon Valley style, you think of everything as a technology problem. Like, oh, if we only had better AI and better robots, then we would see mass adoption of robotics. But we invested in all these incredible, incredible technology companies, but we still saw super small amounts of adoption. You know, like we had 10 units deployed here, 20 units deployed there. And then we started looking around the wider world in manufacturing and construction and agriculture and healthcare. All these places that have a desperate, desperate labor shortage didn't have any robots. And everybody kept saying similar things. You know, we've been trying to automate this thing for the last five years and we haven't been able to. Or they say, if we don't automate, we're going to go out of business. But yet still, when you walk around a lot of these plants, there's very little automation in there. And what we realized is that one of the biggest reasons that automation is not deployed is that there's just too much risk and too much cost associated with that risk for people to kind of pull the trigger. So what generally happens is that manufacturers are being asked to cough up hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars for something that's unproven that may or may not work in general. And even more uh, importantly, may or may not work for their specific application in their specific facility with their specific products. And there's so much unknown and so much uncertainty. And most of the vendors in this space just charge you for kind of custom engineering work, right? And so they're incentivized to charge you as many engineering hours as they can, to upsell you as much equipment as they can. And there's this massive misalignment of incentives that meant that manufacturers were faced making this impossible choice between, on the one hand, taking a lot of risk for something that may or may not work and probably is not going to work. And it's probably going to cost a lot more than you originally expected. Or on the other hand, not doing anything and suffering. And both of those are not very attractive options. And so we started Formic with the idea of saying, you know, we know a lot about robots. We deploy robots all the time. What if we can take on some of that risk on their behalf and make it easier for people to adopt automation? Can that drive up adoption? We're a little bit like a staffing agency for robots. What that means is that for factories who are short-staffed, they can call us and we'll show up and we'll help fill some of their empty headcount with robots. We'll charge the same way the headcount charges, which is by the hour. And what they'll see is they don't pay anything until we drop off the robot and it starts working and it runs exactly their parts. So there's no, no capex, no uncertainty. You don't pay anything if it doesn't work. And then once it's installed and running, they just pay for using it 
we take care of all of the complexity, all of the service and maintenance and spare parts and management of that robot and repurposing that robot and reprogramming it if your parts change. There's all these you know, ongoing obligations the customer is stuck with if they have to buy their own uh, robots. We take care of all of that stuff. And so really, it just makes it extremely easy for people to adopt automation. But more importantly, the real goal here is to boost the productivity of these manufacturers, right? A lot of manufacturers have been stuck in this productivity rut for the last five, 10 years. Interesting stat that we found is that the typical factory in America only runs about 2,000 hours per year out of 8,700 possible production hours. And if you look at actual usage time on their machines, for example, the spindle time on a CNC machine, it's typically even less than that, which means that for 75% of the time, everything in that facility is sitting idle, right? All the floor space, all of the forklifts, all of the air conditioners, all the conveyors, like all these things that you've invested money and time and equipment into just sit around collecting dust 75% of the time. And once they put in robots, what happens is that they get a lot more utilization, they produce more, and so their top line goes up, but their bottom line goes up way, way, way more because now all of those fixed costs are actually getting put to use. They've already paid for the facility and the air conditioner and the forklift. Now you're just getting a lot more out of it. And so it's a massive boost to the productivity of these American manufacturers and that's something that really excites us as a business. So sorry, it's a very long, long answer to a short question. It was question. a good explanation. One of the things that I couldn't help but notice as you're describing that is that customers were resistant to adopting because of the complexity, but also the risk. So your model, it sounds like you're taking on quite a bit of risk in these robots. You're able to bring down some of that cost because of your expertise and the aligned incentives, but... I would think that the selection of which applications make sense for you right now as a smaller company would matter a lot. So what types of use cases are making sense for you to deploy right now? I figure it'd be pretty hard to underwrite a use case where the value proposition doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. So there's three big areas for us of interest to your listeners. One of the big ones for us is metal fabrication processes. And so we put a lot of robots that load and unload CNC machines. So they pick up blanks and they put them in, take them out. They load and unload presses, for example, in sheet metal and things like that. We have a lot of robots that do welding. And also recently we have robots that do inspection for products. And so the robot will come and kind of circle around a product and check for defects. And these are all super useful for manufacturers who are making automotive parts, aerospace parts, and recently some defense manufacturing as well. These are all areas where there's a severe shortage. So we have robots that supply to tier one OEMs. We have robots that are supplying to companies that make golf carts and lawnmowers, you know, kind of a wide range of stuff. Another big category for us is plastic injection molding. And there's also a lot of those that serve the automotive industry, but also many other industries. And primarily in that industry, we put robots that unload injection molding machines. And so as the parts are produced, the robot can come in on a kind of consistent basis and take out the parts. And what that leads to is, again, much higher utilization of the injection molding machine, higher quality parts, less defects, and things like that. And then the third big area for us that we found a lot of success in has been in food production and food manufacturing. So chocolate chip cookies and matcha powder and shredded lettuce and things like that. We have a lot of robots that do case packing, taking those individual items and putting them into boxes or palletizing, which is taking those boxes and putting them onto pallets. And then recently we were also starting to put in some mobile robots that are taking those pallets and putting them into a warehouse or putting them onto a truck or things like that. So all of these are highly repetitive tasks. A lot of them are pretty backbreaking labor and they're tasks that workers don't want to do. And in a lot of cases, manufacturers can't find people who are willing to do those work, do those jobs. When we put in robots, worker satisfaction goes up, 
workers' injuries goes down, and all of a sudden they get a lot more production. Yeah, it's been pretty fascinating to watch the decline of the unemployment rate, especially in places like the southeastern U.S., but really all over the country where a lot of these companies have invested in. Manufacturing continues to grow in the U.S., and one of the main challenges we see is the staffing of plants. It's not just about can you pay people? Sometimes they aren't even able to bring people into their plant to work. So I know a lot of people will be interested in bringing robots in. Actually, one of the previous guests on this podcast, which made me think of inviting you, they run a private equity firm, John Stewart of Middle Ground Capital, and they actually have an eight-person robotics team that they built within their firm. Most private equity firms and most companies don't have access to that. So what about downtime? I know people are always concerned about absenteeism when they have real workers. What type of service network have you put in place when you think about deploying your robot workers by the hour? Have you started just in certain regions and build up service network there? Yeah, I'd be interested to know about that. Yeah, I'll answer that question in two ways. One is we have solved that problem first using technology and second manually, right? We can't automate stuff for other people if we don't also automate stuff for ourselves. So what that means is we built a lot of technology for robot diagnostics and error resolution. We've built devices that we put onto all of our robots as well. We have a control center. We have technicians that are watching all of our robots in real time in all places. They're also looking at all of the things like vibration, joint temperatures, pick rates, cycle times, and everything related to the health of that robot and that manufacturing process. And we look for anomalies. Usually we find anomalies before they become a problem on the production floor. And so we'll see that, you know, this robot is starting to vibrate more than it usually does. And we'll look at the video feed and we'll see that, you know, it looks like maybe one of the joints needs replacing. And so it'll trigger an action for us where we will then send out our technician to replace that part before it goes down. So we guarantee 98% availability on all of the robots that we deploy and we pay out of pocket if we don't hit that metric. Again, unheard of in this industry, we're the only ones that stand behind the service level agreement like that. And the reason is we can do that confidently because we're actually watching everything and we know what's happening and what's going down. There's a lot of things we can resolve remotely as well. So we can log in. We've built an app that our customers can use with their phone. They show our technicians remotely a video of, of the robot and our technicians can through augmented reality point at stuff and they say, can you just wipe down this sensor, or wipe down this camera, or whatever it might be, so that they can get back to production. In addition, we do have a technician network that we've built all around the country. So Midwest is where we initially started. We now have technicians also in California. We have technicians in the Northwest, Michigan, that area on the East Coast, and kind of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, where there's a lot of manufacturing. In Southeast, in North Carolina, we have technicians that cover that region. And now we're building a team in Texas as well. So we're really covering a lot of the major manufacturing hubs across the U.S., we have service level commitments that allow our team to be there uh, in a really short amount of time to respond to issues. So again, I think it, it comes down to that uptime commitment that we talked about, right? If we don't hit our 98% uptime commitment, we're not getting paid. And that is very unique in this industry. There's nobody else. Everybody else will sell you a $500,000 piece of equipment. They might say it's, yeah, this works 99.9% .9 of the time. But what happens when it's down for a week, you got to pay them again to show up. And if you don't pay them, they're not going to come. Whereas for us, it's opposite, right? We are getting paid by the hour. And if our robot stops working, we're not getting paid by the hour. We're very incentivized to go out and fix it. That puts us on the same boat with our customers. And I think that's really where uh, what a lot of customers have said is I like that you have skin in the game because we act differently when we're on the same side instead of a counterparty who's trying to charge you for everything. Oh, pay me for this spare part. Pay me for those three hours. Oh, pay for my flight. My guy needs to fly business class. We don't do any of that, right? Like it's all on the hourly rate and all the service maintenance is included. So we're incentivized to find ways to make it more efficient. 
Yeah, that business model shift from what the engineering firms that typically install robots seems pretty powerful. But you're still working with a wide range of robotic robots themselves, right? Like the suppliers of the robots you're not building, you're just building software to monitor a system of deploying and keeping them operate. Is that correct? And how have these existing robot makers viewed your kind of disruptive business model? Yeah, that was the kind of insight that led to this company. When we started, we said, oh, should we build our own robot? And when we looked around, we said, there's actually amazing people building fantastic robots. We don't need to build new types of robots. What we need to do is make them easy to deploy and easy to install. So we work with a lot of existing robot manufacturers, Yaskawa, KUKA, Fanuc, Universal Robots. We work with all these different kind of large robot manufacturers. To make a robot work, there's a whole work cell. So you need all the other things. You need end-of-arm tooling, you need conveyors, you need PLCs sometimes, you need safety systems. So we buy those from a variety of different vendors that are mostly off the shelf. What our software does is it makes it much easier to design and deploy those systems. So when our salesperson shows up at a customer site, we gather a little bit of data, we do a quick 3D scan of their facility, uh, and instantly our software will spit out full robot work cell designs, including mechanical prints, electrical prints, the programming for the robot, simulations of that robot, so that our customer can see what it's going to look like. That's what used to be a months-long, if not years-long process of kind of iterative design. We kind of shank it down. Like you said, we have a bunch of software that monitors and manages the robots as well. We're really lucky that we live in a day and age where there's a lot of vendors out there that make incredible products. We just need to figure out how to get them combined together and installed in the right place at the right time as efficiently as possible. How much faster is the deployment with Formic versus what your traditional competitor would be benchmarked at? Our fastest deployment from the time the customer gave us the thumbs up and signed the contract to the time that our robot was deployed was about two weeks. I wouldn't say that's the most common number. I think it, it ranges a little bit. We have a bucket of what we consider our standard products. Most of the things I mentioned earlier fall into that bucket. We have off-the-shelf systems that we can basically just drop off with a little bit of configuration. And then there's also some more custom systems. So we have systems that have taken you know months to deploy, and that's because there's just so much more complexity involved. But for the standard product offerings, we're very, very fast to deploy. I feel like I read something where you had an ambition to be the largest robot workforce in a couple of years. What are the obstacles to making that happen? What do you have to do to actually employ that? And what would the world's largest robot workforce actually look like? It sounds like it's a wide variety of robots. What number, I guess, are you shooting for and what steps are you taking to get there? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of numbers of context and then I'll answer the question. Last year in America, in all of America, about 40,000 robots were deployed. At the same time, right now in America, there's more than 1.3 million unfilled manufacturing jobs. Uh, that's just unfilled manufacturing jobs, let alone if we want to increase productivity and do more. The rate of robot deployment today is not even a drop in the bucket. When I say kind of we want to build the world's largest robot workforce, what that means is on the order of, you know, three to 500,000 robots is where we want to get to. When you talk to people in the robotics industry and they hear that number, they think it's insane. They're like, in all of America, we only deployed 40,000 robots last year. How do you think you can do a few hundred thousand yourself? But I truly believe, right, this model that we bring completely changes the way that robots get deployed. Now, I'll give you an example to illustrate why. Back in the day, if you wanted to have email address, what you would have to do is you would have to go and buy a $30,000 server. 
you'd have to have a room somewhere in your house or your office that was air conditioned that you could put that server in. And on top of that, you'd have to buy bandwidth. You'd have to buy $50,000 of software licenses. You'd probably have to hire an IT guy to stand around and take care of it. And only then would you be able to host a domain name and get email address. As a result, nobody had email, <laughs> right? Or very few people had email. It wasn't until companies came around and they said, you know what? It's actually way more efficient for me to buy the servers and manage the servers and manage a large air-conditioned warehouse called the data center manage them for everybody. And then you just buy usage rights to that email. You buy, pay $5 a month, whatever it is, to use that email. Uh, that's when mass adoption of email happened because people realized, yeah, this is not that hard and I need it. So it's going to make my life easier. I think we're in a similar turning point for robotics where people are starting to realize that it's much easier for there to be a professional manager of a robot fleet. <laughs> we get a lot of economies of scale because we're doing this not just for one factory, but for many, many factories. And so we're doing it at scale. We have a lot of buying power. We get discounts on the robots that we buy. We have the ability to manage them at scale. We have the ability to redeploy them as your needs change. We could take it out from your facility and put it somewhere else. And so as a result, everybody gets better pricing and much, much more convenience. And what that leads to is a drastic increase in adoption. You mentioned some of your past podcasts over private equity firms. We work with actually quite a few private equity firms who have bought a lot of manufacturing businesses. And this is kind of very much in line with their model because they can bring us in and they don't have to have any more CapEx outlay. They don't have to build, like you said, the kind of nine person in-house robotics team. And even a nine person in-house robotics team can only do a, so many robots a year, right? With no extra burden, no CapEx, like they just basically get this switch that they can flip and suddenly they see OPEX come down, no additional lending capacity necessary, no additional paperwork, no additional maintenance technicians, no additional engineering. It literally you just flip the switch and, and, and you get a lot of more OPEX reduction and you get a lot more value out of those portfolio assets. And so private equity firms are calling us with these kinds of requests for us to go in and help them improve their portfolio. But also some of them have started calling us now and asked us to come help them choose who to buy based on suitability for automation. It's been a really fascinating process to see the value that we're generating for people. One of our aspirations is to help make manufacturing cool again. And I think companies like yours is really important because being able to eliminate some of those really repetitive jobs makes the rest of the jobs within a manufacturing plant more exciting and engaging. Not only were there not enough people to staff, but really going out and trying to run a factory when you can barely get people in the door and then bringing people into dirty or stressful jobs is not as interesting as making amazing products and focusing on optimizing the system and developing new cool solutions. So it's pretty exciting. The financing that you just mentioned that companies don't have to worry about that. Have you figured that out? How to finance all these robots? That seems pretty incredible. And how are capital partners for you thinking about this growth? Is it something that they love to back ordinarily with manufacturers and you just really streamline this or are, are there some bottlenecks there? Yeah. So that was one of the first problems that we set out to solve. So we've put together about $250 million debt facilities so far, and there's more availability where that came from. These funding partners that we work with really like working with us because they like knowing that there is a professional manager who's in charge of these robots. As a factory, if you want to buy something, you have to kind of lend against your balance sheet, right? And it's hard for these funding partners to look and evaluate every single business. They don't know exactly what the additional value out of that asset is going to be in that business. But for us, we have a pretty proven model where we know, hey, for this type of robot, 
we can charge $15 an hour. And for that kind of robot, we can charge 10 bucks an hour. And for that kind of robot, we can charge 19 bucks an hour. And historically, here's what we've been able to make from these robots. And that really helps us with these funding partners to explain these are revenue generating assets. And we're professionals at managing these assets. We can take them and turn them into value for you. But yeah, we're very lucky that we've been able to establish a good number of partners, even in this environment where you know, the cost of capital has gone up. But we still have incredible partnerships with people who can back large volumes of deployments for us. Capital availability is really a meaningful part of this business too. Are you able to repurpose these robots pretty quickly? Is that part of the reason why a firm would be willing to lend against them? Like if a factory's priorities change, are you able to help reconfigure that robot worker to a new task? And is that something new? Obviously when factory managers are listening to this and they're thinking about it, they're thinking of a large engineering firm bill to make a change or to switch a line. Yeah, that's where a lot of our software comes in. So we built software that does this kind of auto configuration and auto design. We design these robots in a way that they're relatively modular and they're easy to repurpose. Every job is a little bit different, right? Every product that you're picking up and handling has different requirements and every environment has different needs. Sometimes you have to put it on the conveyor, sometimes you have to put it in the box, sometimes you have to put it on the pallet. You know, there's all these different details. And so while there are customizations that need to happen, we've designed our systems to be relatively modular because we had that in mind, right? We expected that we would need to repurpose them every once in a while. It does cost us money, obviously, to repurpose them. It's not free, but we don't pass that cost on to our customer. We include it and we build it into our model as an expectation. We think, you know, this robot, we're probably going to repurpose it three or four times. That robot, we're going to have to repurpose it 10 times. This robot, we're going to keep it in place for five years or 10 years in a row. So it really depends on the application. Is that deployment software something that's not been common, even within larger engineering firms? I was just in a factory a few weeks ago. And I was watching somebody configure a robot that was loading parts into an oven. And it looked fairly manual, making a lot of small adjustments to the code. What have you been able to do to make deploying a robot faster with your software? Yeah, it is a relatively new phenomenon. I think there are a lot of things that we do to make that possible. And one of the big ones, obviously, is simulation. So before we you know, turn a single screw or a wrench, we've simulated everything there is that we could simulate about that robot work cell. So we know exactly what's going to happen and how it's going to work. Obviously, in the real world, there are differences from the simulation. For example, boxes might come down the line and they're not exactly square, right? They might be kind of diagonal. So they're more diamond shaped than rectangular. That obviously happens in the real world and we account for that in different ways. And we built software that basically has certain tolerances built into it. We simulate everything, we iterate on that simulation multiple times, and we also have software on the robots that make them a little bit more adaptable to changes in the real world. All of these little things stack together to make it more robust. You said you were an investor before starting this company. Are there new types of robot applications that you think that you'll be able to help deliver and scale up some of those venture bets that maybe weren't able to reach customers because of the risk? Or are you mostly focused on the more traditional robot applications for now? Yeah, it, honestly, it's both. There's a lot of new technology out there and new methods and systems that make traditional robotics easier to deploy. And so we're kind of aggressive adopters of those new technologies. So there's both. There are new systems that we're deploying that are kind of built on new technology and computer vision and deep learning. There are also a lot of systems that we're deploying that are based on more traditional automation and more rule-based systems. I'd say the split is probably about 70-30, which 70% are more traditional rule-based robotics and about 30% are more AI-driven robotics. Yeah, that, that makes sense. 
some of the fancy, splashy announcements related to robots that came out. There's a startup figure, and I think most people have seen Tesla unveil these humanoid robots. You haven't went that path. You probably had the talent or the capability, and you could probably even gotten financing, given your experience, to make some type of general purpose robot. Why'd you choose specific robots instead of trying to make humanoid robot workers, since your model seems like it would be the same one that these other companies would use of, of robot thinking about robots as workers rather than some big capital investment project? Yeah, I think the main reason is that we set out to solve a different problem than them. I think that we're talking about two problems at the same time. One problem is how can we make robots do more things? And there are a lot of companies in that world, right? There's companies like the ones you mentioned, but there's also you know, Covarian and Dexterity. There's companies like Rapid. There's companies that make apple picking robots and robots that do construction related stuff and Canvas, which does drywall sanding and Ripcord, which scans paper. All of those are incredible innovations, more power to them. I think it's really meaningful for people to push the boundaries of what robots can do. But what we're solving is a little bit of a different problem, which is there's actually already a lot of things that robots do very, very well. Most of those that robots are currently capable of, people aren't using them for, right? And so in my mind, it's like, it's a little bit futile for me to work on new capabilities because they're going to come up with the same problem. They're still not going to get adoption unless we solve this other issue, which is how do you get robots into people's hands as easily as possible. We're kind of clearing the pipe, if you will. And then any new type of robot that comes up that does some new thing, we're really excited to help make it easier for them to get adopted. So how is your team set up to do this? I assume you've got a team focused on the software you have. Are the people that actually are responsible for implementing the robots, are they in-house? And how does that whole team work together? Yeah, you could think of it as almost four different engineering teams. One engineering team is the software team. They do some of the stuff we talked about earlier, tools to automate the design and deployment and service and management and maintenance of those robots. Secondly, we have our solutions team. And so these are the engineers that show up on site to our customers' facilities and know enough about automation to be able to figure out what are the good tasks here for robots to do and what are the data that we need to collect and how do we kind of choose the right robot for the job. Then we have our deployment team. And so the deployment engineers are generally people who've deployed hundreds of robots across their careers. And they work with our vendors to buy all of the stuff that we need. They work with other kind of subcontractors who do some of the design and installation work. They basically make sure that the robot gets assembled as designed and gets installed and works, right? And so we go on the floor, actually test it, run product, prove that it works. Our customer does a kind of acceptance process as well. And then the next team of engineers that we have is what we call production optimization. And so these are engineers who, after the robot's been installed and running, they're in charge of monitoring it, making sure that they fix any issues that come up. But more importantly, we don't call it the maintenance team. We call it the production optimization team because there's a very big component of what they do, which is they actually go into our customers' facilities and they look around and they say, hey, you have this robot here. Here are all the things it could be doing. You're using it right now for task A, B, and C. You could actually be doing tasks D, E, and F as well using this robot. Based on our historical data, you run it from 6 a.m. to 12 a.m., and then there's this block you know, between 12 a.m. and 3 p.m. that you're like not using it. And why is that? And when we find out more information, we help them solve some of those bottlenecks. And all of a sudden, what happens is that not only the utilization of the robot goes up, but the whole facility gets a lot more productive. 
And that's a process that um, requires people who not only know manufacturing and know robotics, but they really have to understand how our customers' businesses work. And so our customer success team is kind of embedded in that and they work with our customers to help them get the most out of their robots. So those are all very different kinds of engineers and they're all incredible in their own way. It's very difficult work that they all do. Yeah, that's fascinating. What types of skills do you think we need, especially maybe in North America coming out, like people that are interested in working in manufacturing, and let's say they're interested in 10 years from now having really relevant skills if companies like Formic are succeeding and more things continue to be automated. I'm always really impressed by some of the farms as well, like the app harvest and other farms that are going more robotic. What are the core skills? It sounds like some mechanical engineering, software engineering. What other types of skill sets are, are needed to support this new paradigm? That's a great question. More of everything, really. <laughs> I think we need a lot of electrical engineers. We need people who are very familiar with robot simulation. We need process engineers who understand how production processes work and can design how these pieces speak to each other. We definitely need more software engineers who can build you know, more robust systems that can do more interesting things. A lot of co computer vision, AI, and machine learning are very important part of this future that we're building. So I wish I had a single answer for you, but really it's everything. But even on the other side of the spectrum, even robotics technicians, we found it incredibly, incredibly hard to find people that are excellent as robot technicians. The number of people that actually have hands-on experience with the robot is so far and few between. And there are some community colleges and things like that that have programs especially tailored towards training robotics technicians, and they all get swept up first day that they graduate. We're looking at building our own training programs. We're also working with other places that train these kinds of folks. We need really a lot more people who have hands-on experience and are willing to show up and be the ones who solve problems. Will those simulation tools that you have be able to be used for education and training as well, or are they really just focused on deployment? We've built layers on top of existing simulation tools. So there's a lot of companies out there that make really great simulation tools. Like for example, NVIDIA has this thing called Isaac Simulator, which they recently announced. There are others that make great simulation tools. Uh, and we build systems that go on top of that. So those tools themselves are used in education and we're hoping more people adopt them. The tools that we've built ourselves are kind of very formic specific because they are dependent on what we think of as standard products, what are the things that we have in inventory, and what are the kinds of customers we're interacting with. They're a little bit more formic specific. You said that 40,000 or so robot deployments, I think that was in the US, in are, are these robot suppliers going to be ready to ramp up with you if you succeed? I know that type of manufacturing isn't easy to do. Yeah, luckily the numbers are much higher worldwide. Hmm. So China deployed, I think, 300,000 robots last year. Germany and Japan and other places have a good amount of volume as well. Moving the needle significantly for the US, I don't think it would kind of overflow the world market in terms of demand and need. We're just particularly behind in America right now. I remember seeing some statistic that Korea and Japan, because of their, their population stagnation, they had to address this earlier. So the robots per worker is much higher in those Absolutely. countries. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much data to back up the fact that every time you implement more robots, you actually end up with more jobs. <laughs> there's this fear of robots taking away people's jobs, but the stats show the opposite, which is when you put in robots, you have a healthy business all of a sudden. When you have a healthy business, you're going to need people. These two things actually go hand in hand. I briefly worked for Jason Calacanis, who, who's a media guy, but he talked about in the 90s, his magazine started sending out an email and I think they had 50 plus thousand email subscribers on there. And 
the effort that their CTO had to do in order to send out just their weekly email with maintaining multiple servers, having the list on different ones and firing them up in a specific sequence. And now I could go and I could send a, a 50,000 person email tomorrow using MailChimp, Substack, any type of thing. And the amount of creativity, especially with companies that you're able to help those manufacturing ones, especially in defense or things that have lower volume that didn't have access to robots before, that that's really powerful. Absolutely. We talk a little bit internally about trying to build a world of abundance. It's a little bit what you're describing. We live in a world that is full of shortages of everything, right? All of our customers are eight months, 10 months behind schedule on their deliveries. They were before we worked with them, right? And it's very common in the manufacturing industry. COVID really made it more obvious, but we're still in a world where like there's far less production of things than we actually need. And that's why the costs are so high. And raising interest rates can reduce inflation a little bit. But really, what is the cause of inflation? It's the rising cost of goods. And what's the biggest counter-inflationary force? It's reducing the cost of production. That's what we're thinking about a lot, is like, if we really want to create much more kind of mass availability of high-quality products, there's no magic wand. You just need to create a lot more production capacity. And from a societal perspective, America needs to remain competitive, but the whole world really needs it as we move kind of to the next level of human civilization. Are you just operating in the U.S. right now? For now, we're primarily focused on the U.S. Yeah, there are some opportunities we've explored in Europe and Canada and other places, but there's just so much demand here. And for us to kind of remain as high quality as we want to be in terms of our service and support network, we're trying to stick to the U.S. for now. I think at some point we'll expand. And if somebody wants to learn more about Formic, where's the best place to go? Well, they can go on our website, formic.co, or they can just email me. My email is the letter S at formic.co. So it's very easy. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. This was a great episode. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I really thought what Saman and his team at Formic are doing is incredible. The idea of being able to double or triple the deployment of robots into manufacturing is something that's much needed. And I hope other companies find ways to close that 1 million worker gap that we discussed. I think there's a huge opportunity for manufacturing to continue to create some of the best jobs and an awesome opportunity to create a new future. I learned a lot from Saman and I hope his company succeeds and I hope more companies like Formic continue to succeed. The ability for robots to take away some of the more mundane parts of manufacturing is critical for the success of the industry and being able to produce items at low cost and with high levels of predictability. By having more robots, people working in manufacturing can focus on higher level activities and focus on developing new products, improving manufacturing processes and driving operational excellence. So thank you for listening and subscribe to Manufacturing Excellence wherever you listen to podcasts.